One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Uh, morning, Chris. Good to talk again. Um, as always, I think in recent times, uh, a very interesting, volatile, exciting week on a number of different fronts. Um, financial markets are in turmoil, I think you could say, at the minute. Um, and I think that we, we definitely have to discuss that later on and also what's happening on the cryptocurrency front. Um, I'd like to kick off, if I may, by just talking about a few domestic stories here in Ireland uh, because I, I think we have a few listeners at least that like to be kept up to date on what's happening on the Irish front. Um, on Thursday, we got the inflation data for April. Um, more bad news, of course. The headline rate jumped from 6.7% in March to 7% in April. That's the highest level since November 2000. All of the old culprits are contributing. Electricity up 27.8% home heating oil over 90%, natural gas 54%, petrol 24%, diesel 40%, um, alcohol 5.1%, largely due to the unfortunate timing of the introduction of um, minimum unit pricing. Um, And an issue that I have been droning on about in recent times, um, that's what's happening on the food price inflation front, uh, that story continues to build food price inflation up at three and a half percent. That may not sound very high in the overall scheme of things, but after more than a decade of falling food prices, this does represent uh, a significant turnaround. And um, it's largely attributable to stuff like uh, the shortage of wheat because of the Ukraine situation and the escalation in price there. Um, various oils such as sunflower oil, palm oil, becoming a significant global issue. And of course, the cost of food production 
as in fertilizer, uh, because of the potash content is increasing dramatically. So um, with fertilizer prices increasing dramatically, farmers in poor countries particularly are cutting back on their use of fertilizer, uh, particularly in areas like rice production. That is going to cause, I think, a significant decline in the productivity of a lot of crops uh, later this year into next year. So you'd have to be very concerned that food price inflation and food scarcity um, is going to become a thing over the coming months. And from the perspective of various governments around the world, including the Irish government, um, energy is a problem. But I think food is a much, much more significant problem. Um, and food price inflation has caused all sorts of global political uncertainty, volatility and turmoil over the years. So uh, just to sum it up, you know, the inflation story here and elsewhere continues to build. And um, we had the European Central Bank coming out, um, or at least suggestions earlier this week, that um, interest rates could be increased as early as July. Um, a second story, and it, it is related, um, within that CSO inflation report, uh, private rents up by 9.3%. Um, and there are a number of different indices of rents in this country. CSO is one. Um, this The DAF.ie, um, the property website, is another one. And DAF.ie this week published its quarter one rent report. Um, and some really stark figures there and some stark messages um, 11.7% year-on-year growth in rents, uh, but I think even more significantly, the number of rental properties, 851 homes nationally up for rent, which is the lowest level since the DAF.ie series commenced in 2006. And there's, a, 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 I think, an interesting quote that sums it up from Ronan Lyons, the uh, professor of economics in Trinity, who's the author of the DAF.ie report, who said that, as ever, in a rental market dogged by chronic and worsening shortage of homes, the only real solution is to increase the number of homes with more pressure from certain quarters to stop new rental homes being built. Policymakers must hold their nerve. And this talks to the whole um, spirit of nimbyism that's very much um, alive and well um, in Ireland at the moment, and particularly parties in opposition who constantly complain about the lack of housing about high rents about how high house prices um basically object to many of the housing developments that are proposed and even locally here in terrier in dublin where i live um there's a significant controversy over um a proposed development and Sinn fein um being well a lot of people are opposing it but Sinn fein very much to the gan the vanguard of the opposition to that so um, the, the whole property thing, and um, I, I, I was listening... Well, can I ask you a question there, yeah. Jim? Because it, it's a very specific question, and, and it's very focused on economics rather than politics, Sinn Féin's politics, is that the, the principle is that you've got to increase supply. And that's true in all countries that have these housing crises. We have a housing crisis in the UK. The headlines today in various newspapers will include the words housing crisis UK, as part of their stories. And there, there are lots of different stories I could talk to you about what's going on here in the UK. But I know Sinn Féin are the ones that say, we will increase housing supply. 
Um, do we know with any kind of precision how they plan to do that? Or is this just merely an expression of aspiration? Is it just their determination to increase housing supply? Or have they got a detailed plan to work out how they're going to um, reform the planning system, where they're going to get the builders, the construction workers and the construction materials from, given all of the shortages and price increases that we know in all of those areas, both in terms of labour and materials. Uh, the, the culture in Dublin, I've flown in and out of Dublin several times recently, and it's it's still striking, even in 2022, how it's a city that never builds up. Um, I still haven't got a worked out answer to that question. It's also, incidentally, a city that never builds down. In that it's bizarre you have such a city of the, the, a capital city like Dublin of its uh, prosperity without any kind of underground metro, underground railway system. But going back to increasing the supply and the specific policies that you need to um, uh, increase the supply of housing, one of the things that you need, apart from people to build the houses and flats and materials and land, is that you need money. And one of the things that Sinn Féin continuously does, of course, is it says it doesn't want any investment funds involved in building houses anymore, or, or, or certainly build to rent. And I do wonder whether they have actually fully articulated where the money is supposed to come from. So when you look at what they actually say, which is that we have a plan to increase housing by X thousand units per year, and then what they actually do. So it's, this is a, a question about looking at what people say and looking at what they do. They say we have a plan, and by a sheer force of will, it seems to me, they're going to build lots of houses. Then when they, what they actually do is that every time there is a plan, like in your Terenure, uh, they oppose it. And it's not the first time they've done that, is it? Um, and, then, and then the other thing that they attack, when if it isn't actually attacking actual plans to build extra housing, they attack the sources of funding, because they say we don't want any foreigners involved in our markets here. So it strikes me that they are... Um, heading for a fall. Uh, I don't think that their plans stack up. We've said that many times on this. But the more I look at it, the more I am amazed that people fall for this. Because I was reading the Irish Times yesterday, I think it was, in which they were talking to people who are in housing difficulties, the kind of rents they're having to pay, the circumstances they're in. And um, at least one of these people said, uh, I have always been a centre politically oriented person. And I can't remember whether they said they voted for Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. But anyway, they, they've been a centrist voter all of their lives. But they're definitely 100% going to vote for Sinn Féin next time because Sinn Féin are going to solve the housing problem. It strikes me that that's typical. I hear that a lot, particularly from people under 35. And it strikes, and from the opinion polls and, and their actual electoral successes, it strikes me that people have completely fallen for the narrative that Sinn Féin have the answer to the housing crisis when it strikes me as being equally plain that they don't. What yeah, do you- I, I I can't see um, in their proclamations about the housing market any plan that looks workable. Um, as you say, they are demonising the source of external financial investment in the Irish housing market. Um, they oppose many of the developments, as I say, that are, are <clears throat> excuse me are in the planning process. Um, so I, I totally agree with you. Where is the funding going to come from to provide the housing? Um, where is the labour going to come from? And, and so on. So I think if Sinn Féin come into government in 2024, two years down the road, we'll still be talking about a significant housing crisis and Sinn Féin will not have solved it. But 
if you put yourself in the shoes of younger people who are at the cutting edge of this housing crisis at the moment, um, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael over many years have actually failed abysmally to deliver sufficient housing for a variety of reasons. Hang on a minute, hang on a minute. The problem... Ten yeah. years ago, we had ghost estates all over the country. We had too much housing. It's not that long ago that we had well, a surplus. Chris, 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 hang on a second. Those ghost housing estates were in areas that nobody wanted to live anyway. What's happened to them um, since? Well, a, a lot, I think, have been somewhere knocked and others have eventually come back into circulation. But the problem with that housing thing in the build-up 2006-2007, because of the development levies involved... Uh, local authorities all over the country were prepared to give as much planning permissions as necessary as a fundraising mechanism for a local authority. So as a consequence of that, we got a lot of development in areas where certainly back then there was absolutely no demand for those housing, those houses, excuse me. And then, of course, when the whole thing crashed, a lot of those were actually knocked. But the interesting thing is now that I think that was a mistake because a lot of those housing developments probably would be in demand today because people are being forced out of Dublin um, because of price. Uh, We're seeing the growth of remote working following two years of COVID. So living in sort of rural areas and rural towns around the country um, has definitely become a lot more attractive to a lot of people. But I go back to my point, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil have abjectly failed to to solve the housing crisis it has got worse under their watch and one of the they so but I, I don't believe for one moment that actually Sinn Féin have the plan to solve it either yeah but you're, people, having a, you're having a go at the two main political oh well two of the three now main political parties in Ireland and I just wonder how I, it's a question I don't know the answer to this but how fair is your criticism Jim because I ask the question a more fundamental one how tractable is the housing problem um, if you refuse to build up and and you refuse to build down and you have the absolute binding constraints of workers, where are they to build these houses, price constraints in terms of shortage materials, look at the prices of the various things, even predating Ukraine, wood, for example, a key construction material was was, was escalating in price by, by a lot, et cetera, et cetera. And then you look at countries elsewhere and the narrative that you describe about what has happened to Irish house prices and shortages and all the rest of it is repeated ad nauseum throughout the world. In uh, London, the move out of London by people who can no longer afford that city has been going on for years and has accelerated in recent times because younger people can't afford to live there or you know, buy or rent. And that's actually changing the political and, de- and electoral demographics of regions outside London, because as younger, educated people move out of London, they bring their liberal uh, politics with them uh, into conservative voting older towns. And it's interesting that it changes the political dynamic there as well. Uh, I've got relatives who live within now commuting distance of Toronto in Canada in quite small suburban towns. And very modest houses there because the the commuting has become possible to Toronto because the, the roads are getting better, but more because of working from home. Very modest houses in these, these areas, miles from Toronto, are actually going for over a million bucks, etc., uh, etc. Et and I could go on about this, but I think that these are global forces that have very local effects. 
And I wonder when you have a go at Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil about their abject failure to solve the housing crisis, what would, what would you have done in their place? What should they have done? Chris, um, what I was saying was that the young people who are flocking towards Sinn Féin at the moment, and that's what the opinion polls are suggesting, you know, there's a particular surge in Sinn Féin supporting people from their early 20s up to their mid to late 30s. Um, and housing is a key driver of that because as people see it, and, and it, it is a fact, okay, that under the watch of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, who have been in government as far back as we can remember in various guises, um, the housing crisis has got worse. Okay. Agreed. Agreed. So, but uh, could, uh, could they have done anything about it? Uh, well, I, I, I think a bit more bravery, actually, going back to the whole issue of political cowardice. I mean, why not build up? You know, wh- why not try and push through that agenda? Because um, you, ha- you have to take on the Irish people. Exactly. Who equally, or some Irish people. But that's what political leadership is about. I know, I know. But, but, but OK, explain to me why you won't build up in Dublin. Um, it's, 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 there's total opposition to it here. There's, there's no interest. Um, that, that's what people then you're yeah. telling me in a democracy that's what people want we don't want anything above three stories in our city i'm exaggerating to make the point uh and therefore i think the the leadership that has to be uh present in situations like this is that the consequences of every decision that you take have to be pointed out and one of the things that i think that is often not done is pointed out just how consequential policy, particularly economic policy, actually is. Sometimes not immediately, sometimes not even in the life of a particular government. But further down the road, quite small changes in economic policy can have very, very profound effects. And I think people extrapolate from the current situation forward and think very linearly. Jim, when we, when we, were, when we were five years old, when you were five years old, what was Ireland's biggest export, right? We have this massive technology-driven Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, you know, great modern economy, pharmaceutical companies, uh, Dublin, Cork, they're all great cities now with full employment. When you were five years old, what was Ireland's biggest export? Agriculture. Live, cat, live cows. Live cows, exactly. Yeah, to the yeah. UK. And people, I think, sometimes fail. You're not that old either. Sometimes people fail to understand just how much Ireland and its economy and therefore its society has changed in our lifetimes. And that as a result of a number of forces, uh, individual decisions taken on the ground, luck, serendipity, chance, circumstance, all play a role. But a key factor behind that absolute fundamental transformation of the Irish economy has been economic policy. And it, policy is very, very consequential. So that when you decide, when you say, okay, Mr. Irish, Mr. and Mrs. Irish citizen, Mr. and Ms. Irish citizen, your decision not to have any buildings in your capital city or indeed elsewhere taller than about 10 feet means that you're going to have, amongst other things, much higher prices than you would otherwise have. But do we ever do that? No, we don't. No, no. Um... I'd like to pick your brain a little bit on the whole demand supply dynamic in the housing market. Um, okay, it is it is estimated based on uh, demographic projections and household formation rates and so on 
that Ireland needs to be building 35 to 40,000 houses per annum over at least the next decade to um, narrow that gap between demand and supply. Okay, between 2011 and 2021, we delivered on average around 12,000 houses per annum. And there has been a significant pickup in the last three years, but we're still looking at just over 20,000 houses. So clearly there's a total lack of adequate supply. Okay, and I I guess the thing that taxes me a lot is, um, number one, how much supply do we really need? Uh, Because, okay, we have these demographic factors, but we also have the fact that there's a lot of people in their 20s and even in their 30s living at home with their parents at the moment. And um, those people, you know, given the opportunity, will move out from home and, and will um, intensify that demand for housing. So I guess where I'm going, and, and, and this is the, the second part of the question, do you think actually ramping up supply to 35, 40,000 houses per annum will actually solve this problem? I mean, is is this a basic demand supply economic model or is there more to it? And there's I think you... There's yeah, more you, than that. Yeah, and, what and, is it? Well, there are lots of factors. And one of the things that... Um, and I'll give you an example of what I mean. It is undoubtedly the case that if you increase housing supply, you'll increase housing supply. So more people will be able to have their own houses. Uh, I'm intrigued by the use of the word house because we keep using the word house in an Irish context. We should we, say dwellings. We should say dwellings. Yeah, because I, th- I think that the yeah. only way in which a, solu- a supply-based solution is a significant part of the solution is if we people live in flats and in every capital city in the world uh, it's generally accepted that unless you've won the lotto in reality or or just in you know lucky and gotten rich very quickly very young you are going to spend a considerable length of your early adulthood living in hopefully a nice apartment but there is still I think somewhat uh, less than it was but it's still a cultural resistance to that in the UK I spent some time recently in Vancouver right which has got the most amazing property bubble that you could possibly imagine and has had one for years. They've passed legislation to try and restrict foreigners buying uh, property in in, in Vancouver. And there they have built up. They've done what I suggest Dublin should do. The the Vancouver um, horizon uh, landscape is dominated by, you know, 30, 40, 50 story high, they call them condominiums over there, uh, dwelling. And there's... Hundreds of them, and every little house, old nineteen thirties house that comes up for sale gets demolished, and a fifty-story condominium block is uh, built in its place. It's been doing that for years, and it has made no difference whatsoever to Vancouver house prices. You might argue that they would have been even higher if you hadn't done this, but God, that would be an extraordinary situation. It ha- it may well have increased supply so that uh, more people live in Vancouver and live in the places that they want to live in Vancouver, but it doesn't seem to have made any difference to the house price problem. So Um, does supply bring forth demand? Well, it tells you how, not necessarily that there is, it might do, the old says law thing, there might be all sorts of things going on there that, you know, the jobs and the employment that all the construction creates brings in more people into the city, et cetera, et cetera. 
because populations are not static things. Demographics are not easy to project because flows of people can come from all sorts of different places. If the supply of property in Dublin suddenly increased, you might find an awful lot of people from elsewhere in Ireland wanting to live in Dublin than, than is apparent at the moment. There might be an awful lot of Europeans and other immigrants wanting to, to buy this. The, the demo, demographics, actual populations, are, these, these are tricky, tricky subjects. So it's not, it's not just about... Um, uh, price is not just about increasing supply because demand is something that I think is very fluid and very difficult to forecast. And I'm reminded here of the oil price because we analyze supply and demand for oil to, to the most amazing degree. We know an awful lot about the demand for oil. We know an awful lot about the supply of oil. And yet, even when we get those two things right, we very often get the price completely wrong. We don't know where those two curves are actually in reality going to intersect. And I think housing is a bit like that, too. The curves shift around an awful lot. And I go back to what I've said so many times is that it's very complicated and it's not just going to be about increasing supply. Supply, it has to be part of the solution. Absolutely, we need more dwellings. Couldn't agree more. But I think you might be surprised by the consequences, not least for prices. And I th the only thing that I think is going to get prices down in a meaningful and sustainable way, or one of the routes to, to it, as you know, is via higher interest rates. I think that'll do it. But that, of course, is a very unpleasant way of getting prices down. The other way is going to be a decent recession. I mean, we've had several of those over the last few decades. We know what happens to house prices. When I first moved to Ireland, not that long ago, a few decades ago, I admit, you couldn't give away houses in Dublin. You couldn't give them away. Um so, you know, things do change. And I think people extrapolate the current situation forward all of the time. And I do urge people to um, think seriously about discontinuities, nonlinearities and things changing very, very rapidly. Because I mentioned Vancouver, another property market that has had the most extraordinary bubble is Toronto. Uh, I advised somebody five years ago, actually, not to buy property when they went back to Canada. And it was the worst property advice I've ever given in my life because the, the, the price increases in Toronto over the last five years have been humongous, of course. So I, di I didn't obey my rule of never giving investment advice, let alone property advice. But now Toronto prices are starting to fall. The Bank of Canada is putting interest rates up. And I think the two are correlated. Um, the headline in the FT today is that UK banks are pulling mortgage deals, the kind of teaser things that banks do to try and encourage you to take out your mortgage with them, um, not least because interest rates are going up and there's been a huge rush into fixed rate mortgages in particular, but mortgage deals in general. And the banks, I think quite rightly, are getting worried about the future of the UK housing market having been burnt during the last great financial crisis, they're in much better shape should there be a problem. But I think because of these rises in interest rates, consistent with everything that I've said, there is a chance that we are going to get a problem somewhere in the world, if not all over the world, in these bubble property markets. So you might be surprised over the next year or two what happens to Irish house prices solely as a result of what happens to interest rates. That assumes that interest rates are going to go up a lot in Europe. We don't know that. We know that now, as you said earlier, that they're going to go up in July. Um, we don't know how by how much they're going to go up, which is the big question facing financial markets generally. Yeah, um, well, bring it on, I have to say. Another aspect of the, the, the property market is, well, I, I mentioned it in my intro earlier, uh, is the rental part of it. And I've been doing some work 
um, looking at the role of private landlords in the Irish property, in the Irish rental market, that is excluding the institutional investors. Um, but one thing we're seeing over the last three or four years is a significant ongoing decline in the number of private landlords in the market. And private landlords are actually um, selling their properties. Um, and for various reasons, most of those properties are coming out of the rental market. They're being bought by people who owner occupiers. Okay, so the rental stock is diminishing as a result of landlords coming out. And I've been analysing the reason why, and I, I interviewed a lot of private landlords to find out why they're exiting the market. Um, it's the regulation in the system. Um, it's a deeply regulated market. Um, it's highly taxed. So in other words, you know, private landlords, any income they get, uh, they're taxed fully. Um, the ability to write off expenses and so on um, is being restricted. And of course, we've had the introduction since 2016 of rent pressure zones and rent pressure zones are zones that are identified um, and uh, basically rent controls are put in place and that those controls are having a seriously distortionary impact on the market again. But the net result of all of these factors is that private landlords are exiting the market. Okay. And on the other, and this goes back, I guess, to the Sinn Féin narrative and narrative of a lot of people. It's not just Sinn Féin, in fairness, um, about the evil of institutional investors in the market. So if you are discouraging institutional investors from coming in, and at the same time, you're creating an environment where private landlords don't want to remain in the market because the economics don't stack up. I mean, how the hell are you ever going to get a functioning rental market and the introduction of these rent pressure zones um in my view was wrong anyway but from a political perspective from, from a populist perspective um it sounded a great thing to do uh, but we're seeing the you know the law of unintended consequences at play here big time so it's it's stuff like this um and this goes back to you know the the criticism of the parties that have been in government it's stuff like this actually um, is all ind indicative of failure. And, and I don't for one moment believe that Sinn Féin or anybody else, people before profit, if in government, they would do any better. Um, I don't think, I don't believe they would. But for young people, they look at the failure of housing policy and they are prepared to contemplate an alternative um, just to see, could it get any better? And wouldn't it be fantastic um, if Sinn Féin solved the problem? Absolutely. And I think one, one must absolutely say that, that if they do come in and do it, uh, I will be the first to metaphorically eat my hat and say, well done, congratulations, uh, because it's, it is so badly needed. Uh, I just think that uh, it, it, from what they, from my analysis of what they say they're going to do, it strikes me more of being an act of will. They somehow are either going to, by sheer force of will, increase the supply of housing to uh, allow more people to to have a dwelling at a lower and more affordable price. The other thing, more generally in terms of their policies, one of the things that's emerged that I didn't know about from the uh, latest crisis in, in Northern Irish politics is that the First Minister and Deputy First Minister uh, in Northern Ireland are actually of equal status, that they, they in a sense, are both First Minister, that when 
Paisley and McGuinness were there. They they had under the Belfast Agreement equal status. It's really interesting, which is a reminder that Sinn Féin has actually had its hand on the levers of power for many years now in the North. And the Northern economy is still a disaster area, as far as I can tell, and uh, is still utterly reliant on London and southeastern England taxpayers for for it, much of its ex- existence. So I don't Chris, think... Chris, you're falling in for the old mistake of letting facts get in the way of a good story here. Sorry, Jim, I apologise for that. I'll try very hard not to do it. Listen, we've taken far more time on that single topic than we ever thought we would. Before we move on, can I just um, allude to one story in the Irish Times this morning that I find interesting in the context of conversations we've had. Uh, The annual general meeting of the Irish Pharmacy Union took place yesterday, the IPU. This is the the organisation that looks after pharmacies, basically. But they were warning that a lot of pharmacies are facing closure due to staff shortages. Um, and this this is a very common theme in this economy and in many other countries at the moment. Um, I was in Dublin on Thursday evening. Uh, first time I've been in on a Thursday evening for quite some time. Um, but I was shocked to discover that um, most of the retailers were shutting down at either 6 or 7 o'clock. Um, Thursdays, they traditionally remained open until 9 so I assume a lot of that is down to staff shortages as well. So it's 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 the, the same here. It's the same here in the UK, Jim. Uh, everywhere you go, particularly in the hospitality industry, but also elsewhere, uh, there's help wanted signs in the window. Uh, you know, there's tons and tons of plentiful work to be gotten here, and it's putting and this is a good thing. It's putting upward pressure on those very low minimum type wages, which is which is good. But of course, it is the inflation story that you're referring to here. And everything in this world is linked to everything else. That's why it's so hard to analyze and so difficult to forecast because everything is linked to everything else. And this is not uh, irrelevant to the discussion that we just had about house prices, because if this inflation story, which has got financial markets generally really rattled, the headline in today's FT is that this has been now the longest losing streak for global equity markets since the financial crisis of 2008. So stock markets are taking this really seriously. Notwithstanding a big Friday rally, uh, the stock market is doing very poorly. Uh, Crypto has blown up. Bitcoin is at its low for the year or very close to it. It's lower than it was a year ago. It's nearly halved in price. uh, And it's proving to be, rather than be uh, money, as a lot of people hoped it would be a substitute for government issued money because we all hate the government and nobody trusts them they're all horrible people rather than being a substitute for your dollars pounds and yen bitcoin is proving to be just a highly geared tech stock by the looks of things just you could, could well be in the nasdaq rather than uh, anything else in, in that context chris um you know i've been reading stuff about the the geared nature of crypto um and, and I've seen comparisons made to um, what happened uh, in 2007, 2008 with the subprime mortgage market and the investment products that grew up on the back of that. Um, and comparisons have been made with the, the leverage involved in crypto at the moment and the potential to cause a serious financial meltdown for certain sectors. Well, those who invest in the thing. Yeah, there's quite a lot going on there. And if you add up the fall in the value of the NASDAQ, all the tech stocks that have fallen, 
the hit to wealth is now greater than the hit from falling house prices, apparently. I've seen one person try to do that calculation. So the numbers are huge. Um, and there's a suspicion that a lot of people have borrowed using their holdings of their stock, their equities that they've gotten through their employment for tech companies to buy crypto. And the two things are falling. The collateral that they put up to borrow money to buy crypto is falling in price. That's the, the tech stocks that they have been issued with as part of their employment packages in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. Uh, and the crypto itself is going down. So you, you have this doom loop uh, in one section of financial markets where people are having to raise more collateral that's falling in price to back an asset that they've bought. You know, so for every dollar of a share that you've got in your portfolio that you've borrowed $10 on, it, it, it's a recipe for disaster. But in every single financial accident in history, every single financial crisis in history, you will find leverage somewhere at the heart of the problem. And just as it was in the great financial crisis, it was people borrowing too much money to buy overvalued assets called houses. Uh, I think we're going to find that there are too many people who borrowed money to buy things like crypto, but not just crypto. I think people have been borrowing money to buy certain stocks as well. So yes, there are problems. The only good thing that we think it, is emerging from all of this is that unlike the financial crisis, the banks themselves are less exposed than they were. So we probably should get away without actually having a banking crisis this time. But that's the word probably rather than definitely. And secondly, what these problems in crypto in particular, but leverage in general will reveal, we still don't know. And there is still a suspicion, a whiff of panic that it could come in an anticipated way. You're seeing credit markets, that the markets in which companies themselves borrow money, not just government debt markets, starting to exhibit signs of strain. Uh, the authorities worry about liquidity in markets, in, in markets that traditionally should be as liquid as, as they come, like government bond markets, and even in the United States. So there are, there are worries at the edges. They're not front and center yet, but there are worries that all of this volatility, weird price action in equities and lots of other financial instruments are going to lead to trouble. And it all comes back to inflation and economic growth. It always does. And if there's too much inflation, your pharmacy story is one aspect of that, job shortages in hospitality is another. If that leads interest rates going up by much more than the market currently expects, we've got one coming from the European Central Bank. If it leads, if the inflation problem proves to be so intractable that interest rates in places, even Europe, then uh, one of the asset prices that is going to go down a lot, I would say, is going to be housing. Great, Chris. Right, Jim. Um, let's wrap it. Um, have a good weekend. I'm off to Waterford now. There's a big hurling match on there tomorrow, so um, I know you'll be watching that with great interest. There's a rugby match on this afternoon, Jim. I think that even you might be interested in that one. It's a European Cup semi-final. Um, and... Tomorrow I am off to, uh, I'm on holiday again. So uh, I'll hopefully speak to you while I'm on holiday. But uh, um, oh, to you. cheers, Jim. See you. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www cjpeconomics.substack.com You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.